Well, how about that? Welcome to the Matanzas Podcast, a baseball podcast. I'm Max Tanzer, joined alongside Ryan Medeiros. A huge thank you to Colin Costa-Walsh for that tremendous holiday-themed intro. We hope you guys are going to have a great holiday season here as we approach Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, all the holidays coming up this December. Another holiday coming up. I mean, you can kind of consider it a holiday, Ryan. The Hall of Fame results coming up in January, but the deadline to vote for the voters will be the end of December. Ryan, you and I don't have votes, but we did cast our ballots, theoretically, for this episode today, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But why don't we start out with our headlines for this evening's show. we got the non-tenders, Trevor May and his deal with the New York Mets. Mike Miner signing a deal with the Kansas City Royals as well. Let's start with those non-tenders. A lot of surprising names, Ryan. Kyle Schwarber, Eddie Rosario, Adam Duvall, David Dow highlight a few of the many. Who surprised you the most? Uh, I don't know if any of them really surprised me. I guess the one kind of name that wasn't really trending in these non-tender talks would have been David Dahl. Uh, he's a younger outfielder for the Rockies, and he's had some real solid seasons with them. But I think, honestly, if you were to ask me what the biggest name was who's on the free agent market now, it's got to be Kyle Schwarber. It wasn't too long ago that he was considered one of the most prolific young hitters in the game. He hit 38 home runs just over a year ago in 2019, had an 871 OPS with the Cubs, playing mostly left field, and he's really improved his defense in left field as well. I think going forward, he's projected more as a DH-type bat, but I think he's a guy that if a contending team could pick him up, he could be a huge difference maker. Absolutely. That's, that was a big name for me, too, and I think he is really boosts this free agency market here. And he's a guy that if you're big on analytics, this is the type of player you're looking for. A guy who slugs, gets on base a lot, will leave the yard a lot as well. And he put up some really good years with the Cubs prior to this past season. Like you said, I know the OPS was just above 700 this year, which obviously wasn't Kyle Schwarber territory. But you got to imagine, only played 59 games this season, that if you gave him about 60, 70 more, the numbers would probably even out a little bit. He was owed $7 million last season, and how arbitration works is the lowest you could go is a 20% drop from the previous salary before, so he would have been around like $5.6 million or something like that at the cheapest for the Cubs, which kind of makes sense why they didn't tender him a deal just because everything that's going on, as well as the fact that the Cubs are potentially trying to take a step back now. But still, Kyle Schwarber, a big piece of that franchise. Another guy who you mentioned that I liked was David Dow, again, coming off of an all-star season in 2019, really struggled in 2020, but I think could be a buy-low guy that could really, if he's healthy, again, health has been such a huge problem for him in the past, if he's healthy, could really help out any outfield for a Major League Baseball team here in the future. I mean, hence maybe the Cleveland Indians, where someone like that could get a cheap, cheap deal on him. Yeah, absolutely. Another guy, just looking at other outfielders, Eddie Rosario is a big guy who's a free agent, and you mentioned the Cleveland Indians, who have lacked a slugger in the outfield, and that's exactly what Rosario is. He bats a lot of runs, and he hits for a good amount of power. In 2019, he had a slugging percentage of 500. He doesn't get on base at all, but he's a guy you can put down in the 6-7 spot in the order, and he can be really productive in driving in runners. 32 home runs in 2019, 109 RBIs. I mentioned he bats in a lot of runners. Um, you look at his OPS, he's, you're talking about a guy who's above average for most of his career, 109 OPS plus in his career, one season below average out of the six seasons he's been in the major leagues, so really consistent. He's not one of those guys who's a star type player, his max OPS plus in his career has been 119 in the 2017 season, but he's really hovered around that 100 to 115 range, and he's a guy that you can plug in the you know middle to bottom half of the order, and he can be really a productive player. Yeah, and for an Indians lineup that was lacking some pop, 
I think he might actually even slide in a little bit higher and could play a huge role for them uh, with the likes of guys like Jose Ramirez and so forth in that lineup. We'll see how it goes. I definitely think a Rosario or a Dow would be a perfect fit for the Indians, assuming they plan to still compete next season. But I think the biggest reason why we're seeing so many guys get non-tendered is just because of the economy right now uh, with the pandemic hitting, of course, and teams just don't want to pay these guys more knowing that they're already struggling in the checkbook, to say the least, if that's the right way to put it. But uh, let's move on. A couple of big pitching deals this past week, the first one being Trevor May signing a two-year $15 million deal with the New York Mets to bolster the back end of that bullpen. Ryan, I absolutely love this move, but before I share my thoughts on it, what are yours? Yeah, I also love this move. May is one of the underrated bullpen arms on the market. He was actually probably, I would imagine he was receiving a good amount of interest because a lot of teams were probably looking at him as one of those underrated guys who can be super effective. He had 38 strikeouts in 23 and a third innings, so he misses a lot of bats. Um, he's kind of, he, he really broke out, I would say, in the 2019 season when he had a 2.94 ERA in 65 games. He had uh, 79 strikeouts and 64 in a third innings that season. But yeah, it, it just goes to show he misses a lot of bats. He can be really productive. He uh, keeps runners from scoring, which is obviously a really important thing when you're a bullpen guy. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of teams, I'm sure, are looking at the, the Hendricks, the Rosenthal's, those closer type arms. But the setup guys can be really important and probably just as important as well. No doubt. I mean, you talk about him being a strikeout machine, 98th percentile in K percentage, 99th percentile in whiff percentage this past year. So he's got it. He's got the high spin rate fastball as well. Loves to live up in the shoulder neck area with that fastball. And I think he slots in perfectly because the Mets have two good guys in the back of their pen, assuming Lugo will stay as a reliever this year in the eighth inning, Diaz in the ninth. Throw in Trevor May, you've got a great three-man punch in the back end of every single ball game, and then you add on the fact that if Dylan Patances is healthy, then you really could have a very threatening bullpen over there in Queens. And for for Steve Cohen, obviously this wasn't the sexiest move, right? You know, everyone's thinking Trevor Bauer, George Springer, JT Romito, James McCann, whatever it may be, but this was just as important, in my opinion, and it really fills that gap up for them this up, for this upcoming season. Yeah, absolutely. And for the Mets, uh, their bullpen's been a big question mark for them over really the past three or four years, you could say, since they made it to the World Series back in yeah. 2015. Uh, I think this is just one of those deals for if you're a Mets fan, you got to hope that this, you know, bridges the gap to Diaz and that Diaz can be just as effective as he was back with your Mariners. Absolutely, absolutely. And Diaz was good last year. I think people, you know, are a little bit too hard on him. Obviously, he had some big blunt saves, but the numbers were not bad at, so he had a really good year. Another big deal, Mike Miner returning to Kansas City on a two-year, $18 million deal. Uh, will be a big arm in that Royals rotation, a young team in general, but hopefully on the rise at some point here. What were your thoughts on Mike Miner? Going to a team like the Royals, who made a couple moves this week and generally were thought of to be pretty under radar coming into this offseason. Yeah, this was an interesting deal. You would have thought Miner as a veteran pitcher would have liked to have gone to a team that was probably going to be a contender. But, you know, this is where Miner really turned his career back around. In 20, he hadn't pitched since 2014 and coming into the 2017 season. The Royals took a flyer on him, and he was excellent out of the bullpen, a 2.55 ERA in 65 games out of the pen for the Royals. And that led to him signing a big deal with the Rangers. And I want to talk about the first two years of his deal with the Rangers because people kind of look at his stats last year and he had a 5-5-6 ERA. Really wasn't too effective. He got hit pretty hard with both the Rangers and the, and the A's last year. 
But the first two years of his deal, he was extremely effective. He had that really good 2019 All-Star season where he had uh, 14 wins, a 3.59 ERA in 32 games, and he struck out 200 batters. Obviously, there was that controversial last game of the season <laughs> where uh, the Rangers dropped a pop-up foul so that he could strike out one more batter of, of the season to get to 200. Was that against your Red Sox, too? It was, it was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was that was a controversial thing. But but he still got the 200 strikeouts, that's besides the point. And, um, you know, the first season of the deal, he was also very effective, 4-1-8 ERA in 28 games. So he's proven that he can be effective at this stage in his career. I think last year might just be a blip, but I think he can continue that effectiveness in a, in a um, you know, a, a spacious Kauffman Stadium there in Kansas City. No doubt. I think the track record shows, at least starting from 2017 when he was back in healthy, shows that you should be confident in him coming into this next upcoming season. Because he, what, threw about 56 innings, 57 innings last season? Of course, it's not encouraging, but I don't think you can't just shut down on him, you know? So I, I, I like the move. I think it's okay. I think it'll work out for the Royals. And, I, you know, it's a two-year deal, which is interesting. So that suggests, to me at least, they're probably... Not going to try and trade him. I guess they could, depending on the circumstances, but maybe this is a guy they want to keep. And look, maybe this is his new home. Came back up with the Royals, as you said, in 2017. Coming back here for 2021 and 22. All right, let's move to the bigger part of this episode today. We touched on it a little bit. The Hall of Fame ballots have been released. We're seeing a lot of voters' ballots coming in through Twitter, social media, and so forth, seeing some of the trends here. Got a lot of interesting names on this ballot here. And again, no headliner or runaway guys. I mean, the last couple of years we've had the likes of Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, but this year we still have some very interesting names, a lot of controversy as well. Let's start off with some of the bigger controversial aspects in Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, two of the best at their position and two of the best to ever play the game, but obviously tainted by PED use. Ryan, what are your thoughts on Bonds and Clemens in this Hall of Fame case? Well, for me, as I know, like you said earlier, we don't have a vote. But I'm voting for them. I talked with you prior, and I know you're voting for them as well. Uh, we had this discussion many a time, and I think it just boils down to, for me, obviously, steroids aside, like the stero- uh, cheating is wrong. I don't need to emphasize that anymore. But the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame, is a museum, and you have to recognize the achievements these guys had in their career. And we've had, again, like I said, some interesting discussions, and I think something that could kind of alleviate some of the concerns of some of the, you know, those older voters. So I think it's a lot of the veteran voters who are kind of, you know, wary about voting for these guys. What I think could alleviate some of those concerns is if the Baseball Hall of Fame came out and said that we're going to put an asterisk on the plaque and we're going to force them to mention, you know, their steroid use either in their speech, and it's definitely going to be on the plaque. But I just don't see how you can't vote for these guys just based on their career accolades. No doubt. I mean, we don't need to go too deep into it because we know they're some of the best of all time. Barry Bonds, the all-time home run leader. Roger Clemens, 4,600 strikeouts, which is basically unheard of. Uh, and I agree with you. I think it would be necessary to put some sort of an asterisk or acknowledge the fact that they use PEDs on their plaque, but that shouldn't stop them from being recognized in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, it stinks. And again, I understand the argument that you're showing players who might potentially have a choice whether or not to take PEDs that you could still get into the Hall of Fame. But at the end of the day here, I still think that they should be recognized for the impact they had on Major League Baseball because that's what the museum is all about, the biggest impact or the biggest impact players on Major League Baseball. And you can't tell the story of baseball over the last 
century without bringing up Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds. So in my opinion, they should be in there, and I'm 100% on board with that. I did vote for those two as well. Some more controversy, not as much, but still PED use with Manny Ramirez, Gary Sheffield, and Sammy Sosa, those three guys. I voted for two of the three on my ballot. I won't tell you which three or which two yet. What did you think about these three guys? You know, like, uh, I'm with you there. I voted for two of the three as well. For me, I look at Manny Ramirez and, and Gary Sheffield as two of the guys who are just two of the most complete overall hitters in the history of baseball. You know, I don't want to get too deep into Manny's stats because he was overall kind of, if, if without the steroids, he would be an absolute lock to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, with uh, really one of the top top 10 OPSs in his career in Major League history. Um, Sheffield with nine seasons of over 900 OPS plus. He was sixth in all of right fielders in um, offensive war in his career. So he's just a prolific bat at the plate. The thing that makes it so tough to me is because you get into kind of murky waters with some of these steroid guys because Sheffield is one of those guys who's always kind of had the steroids like wrapped around his career, but we don't know if he took them or not. Same thing with some of the players who've actually been inducted into the Hall of Fame. I won't, I won't pick out any names, but we don't know for sure whether they took them or not. So for me, it's, I'm, I'm kind of on the perspective of let's just get in the players who are most deserving solely based off of stats because we don't really know for sure who is doing it or not. So why, you know, have just over in fairness, I think it's only fair to have the best players in. No doubt. And I'll tell you the two guys I voted for, the three. It was Manny Ramirez and Gary Sheffield. I did leave Sosa off the list, not per se because I didn't think he belonged, just because I ran out of votes. I would vote for Sosa if I had unlimited votes. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, did you have a point, Ryan? Yeah, kind of going off that vote, and that, that point, and I know we kind of made the same decision here uh, between Sheffield and Sosa for me. So, Sosa's career offensive prowess mainly came from power yes, and when you're and when you're a steroids guy and your whole offensive strategy is on high power numbers and low on base low average it's just hard for me to vote for you over a guy like Sheffield who got on base a lot had high averages just for me Sosa only I mean if you're looking at it like this Sosa only had six seasons with a 900 or higher OPS Sheffield had nine Although Sosa's seasons, in those six seasons where Sosa was 900 plus, he had a couple of massive seasons, including that season where he had the home run chase with McGuire and they hit over 60, um, getting close to 70 there. Just for me, Sheffield did it for longer and he was a more well-rounded offensive player. That was the biggest point for me too, was the length. And you know, I don't think a guy should be hurt because... You know, if his peak was, you know, extraordinary, maybe the other seasons surrounding weren't as big. But for Sosa, it's a big drop-off. I mean, the fact that his career OPS is 878 and the guy hit 600 home runs obviously suggests that, you know, it wasn't too much around that base, or it wasn't too much besides the fact of the home runs. A career OPS plus of 128. Uh, This is hypothetical, and I know this, I I don't know if this is going to sit well with you, but I did some digging here, and I thought this was interesting. So I took out his best six seasons in terms of OPS Plus, which ranged from 1998 to 2002, and looked at the two different um, time ranges in his numbers. From 89 to 97, about 1,088 games, 200 homers, an OPS of 777. From 04 to 07, 342 games, 773 OPS, 70 home runs. So in total, that was about 280 
seven home runs and OPS in the range of 77, 770, excuse me, which again is not Hall of Fame caliber by any means unless you were a tremendous defender. And then I averaged out his numbers from 93 to 97, assuming that that was what track he was on before he took steroids. OPS was 831 in that span, averaged about 34 home runs. And then I tried to do put in the 34 home runs per season and add that into the six years, and that was 204 home runs plus the 287 from the two different time spans was about 491 home runs, which, again, could be Hall of Fame worthy. But for a guy who was sitting around a 770 to an 820 OPS, I don't know. For a guy who is maybe a slightly above-average defender at the most, I don't know. Again, he hit 600 home runs. That's a benchmark. But over the guys like Sheffield, Manny Ramirez, and Barry Bonds, who were better all around, with the on-base, with the slugging, defensively for a couple of them too, I think those guys deserve it way more than the other three. Yeah, absolutely. I love you getting in depth with that there. <laughs> and it really it really goes to show you, though, how, you know, well, for one side, how great that peak was for Sosa, but yeah. it also makes him look really bad when you consider, like, this, the, the steroid use, and that's got to be when he was doing it. And I that mean, was it for him. That was literally it for him versus other guys like Bonds, Manny, and Sheffield. It was a long-range consistency. Even though both of them took roids, it, obviously you've got to imagine that Bonds and Ramirez and Sheffield were better players because their peaks lasted longer and the total numbers added up and stayed consistent. Uh, and again, like... Manny Ramirez, that what, 996 OPS, I think that's ninth all-time in Major League history behind guys like Mike Trout, who that's unbelievable to me already, uh, and Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle and so forth, uh, Ted Williams, you know, that's great company. I do think Manny Ramirez deserves to be in, as well as with Sheffield, too. And I, I didn't look at Sheffield too much, Ryan. You brought it up to me, and I started to look into it a little bit more. The numbers surprised me. I didn't even think he had a career OPS above 900, plus the 500 home runs, 15 seasons with an OPS plus above 137, with an OPS plus above 160. He was a lock for me as soon as I looked into that. So that was very interesting. So just to reiterate here, I went with Manny and Sheffield, not so, so you did the same, right? That's correct. Okay. All right. Let's move to another controversial one, this time not on the baseball field, but off the baseball field. Kurt Schilling, I won't get into his antics too much, but he's obviously said some things that are very controversial, and they're not things I agree with, but I did still vote for him looking at it objectively just by the numbers like you touched on earlier. Before I get into depth with it, what were your thoughts on Kurt Schilling? Yeah, for, at first, actually, Schilling was a lock for me because I kind of didn't look too much into his antics off the field but I'm just going to say something first and and first and foremost the baseball hall of fame is not a hall of character I mean we you there's no real way to quantify the character of a person so it's really hard to you know quantify that when you're considering these awards but I mean it's it's worth noting why voters are not voting for Schilling, and he might not even get in this year because of the not. fact that some of the things he says are just so wrong and so controversial and blatantly disregard any sense of morality. It's hard to vote for him. I can see why voters are struggling checking his name off on their ballots because how do you, you know, how do you glorify somebody who's just a man of terrible character? I mean, some of the things that Schilling has said, and, and I haven't looked too much into it. I don't have any exact quotes. To be quite honest, I didn't really care to. If I had an, a real vote, I would probably look a lot more into this. But just for me, it, I can see why people are struggling with it. I know you and I didn't have to look too much into this because our votes, like, 
to to be to be quite honest, they don't matter because they don't. they're not actually voting. <laughs> but um, but I, I would encourage people if voters and obviously I would imagine no Hall of Fame voters are listening to our show. But I mean, I think it's important for them to look into this because. You are putting someone in, on a high pedestal when you're voting them into the Hall of Fame. Giving them and a it's, platform, yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's hard to put somebody up there who's just been, you know, so controversial and so blatantly wrong over the past couple decades. No doubt. I mean, I think at one point even he was associated with the Little League World Series saying some really terrible things. And, you know, obviously we try not to get political or anything on this show, but the, it, when it gets to that extent, to that far, I think it definitely does play an impact in baseball, you know, because I can guarantee you there are some people who had controversial thoughts in the Hall of Fame right now, but the fact that Schilling has gone out of his way to make them public on social media, to talk to the press about it, I think is a little bit of a problem because they are terrible things to say, and it's a complicated situation indeed, and that's why, you know, we should be lucky we don't have to have this decision on whether to vote for him or not, because it is a very difficult decision, because he's associated with some very great baseball moments, but then off the field, uh, some terrible connotations. Yeah, absolutely. You put away all the, you put all the controversies aside, and Schilling is, should be a lock for Hall of Famer. Three four six career ERA, 216 wins with only 146 losses, absolutely dominated in the playoffs, but then again, you can't you know you can't check him off on your ballot without looking at his yeah considering the off the field antics and and antics is a nice word for it to be quite honest no it is it is and you know with chilling too i mean talking about what he did great on the field to take a little bit of a turn i mean the bloody sock moment obviously one of the bigger uh moments in baseball history at least with him representing it the 2001 diamondbacks him and randy johnson over 3,000 strikeouts uh one of the better pitchers in Major League Baseball history. But with that said, let's move on here. We got a couple of other guys here, uh, guys who specialized in certain categories, whether it's defense, relief pitching, offense, whatever it may be, that have some interesting cases here, Ryan, and Jeff Kent, Billy Wagner, Scott Rowland, Omar Vizquel. Those four, I voted for three of the four, similar to the other one where I voted for two out of three. Uh, What were your thoughts on these four guys? I'm with you there. I voted for three of the four as well. I don't know which three of the four you voted for, but for me, I'll go down the list here. Um, Jeff Kent, for me, was a tough one because he gets knocked a lot in the war category because of his defense. But for me, I just don't know if I can take you know, defensive factors to keep a guy out of the Hall of Fame because I just don't know how accurate they are. They change a lot over... as the years go by, but looking at what Kent did so well, he had 10 seasons in his career with an 850-plus OPS, so um, he just was a really good offensive guy, consistent for a long time, at a position where there typically isn't a whole lot of offense. Uh, For Kent also, he's the number one second baseman all-time in home runs at the position, which is a huge factor for me, and he's fourth all-time in OPS at second base position, which is saying something. Uh, I know his defense, he wasn't the typical defensive excellence, didn't show the typical defensive excellence we see at second base Hall of Fame guys. Typically, we see a lot of second basemen in the Hall of Fame as, you know, more defensive guys than offensive guys, just historically based on the position. But Kent was kind of the exception, and he excelled at what he did, and that was hit for a lot of power. 
secondly, I'll move on before we go back to Kent. I know you have some thoughts on it as well. Wagner, for me, was one of the top three, I would say, yeah, top three closer all time behind Hoffman and Mariano Rivera. Uh, he's fourth all time in ERA at the relief position, sixth all time in saves, and he had 10 seasons with a sub 2.9 ERA, which you might not think is that incredible, but when you look at other relief pitchers such as Craig Kimbrell, who's dropped off the table, Chapman's decline rapidly. Having excellence at the relief position over a long career is something that we don't see that often, and Wagner was exceptional. Uh, Scott Rowland was the third guy that I voted for out of the four that you mentioned. Uh, this was a tough one for me because when I think of Hall of Famer, I think of a guy of a guy who you know was exceptional for a certain part of his career. And while Rowland was very very good for a long period of time, he had eight seasons with an 850 or higher. Uh, OPS. He never really had that, you know, great, great peak. He had a couple of very good seasons, but none that was fantastic. So that made it a little bit difficult for me to vote for him. But the bottom line is he was 10th all time at third base and wins above replacement. A lot of that can be attributed to his excellent defense. And that's what pushed him in for me. No doubt. I mean, I agree with all three of those. Those are the three out of the four I voted for. Um, as well, I'll start out with Kent, just to start off there. I think the fact that he's one of the best offensive second basemen of all time stands for a lot. 377 home runs, MVP in 2000. Uh, really, really good numbers, and I was happy to pick this one. I, I really hope he gets in. I think he was also undershadowed a bit by Barry Bonds as well back in those early 2000s days with the San Francisco Giants, but you touched on it very well. I agree with everything you said. With Billy Wagner, I mean, this guy I'm, I'm really big on, and it's hard with a relief pitcher because it's hard you know, to compare them to other position players and other starting pitchers, and there's definitely a controversy in that, but for me, the way I look at it is, is that's his position. Major League Baseball created that position. He should not be hurt for that. Again, as you said, the 2-3-1 ERA. Out of all relief pitcher Hall of Famers right now, he has the best whip at .998. Mariano Rivera has 1.0 on the dot. 422 saves, an ERA plus in his career of 187, which is significantly higher than the ERA pluses that Hoffman, Eckersley as a relief pitcher, Lee Smith, and Goose Gossage put together. One of the big sets that I really liked was that he had five seasons of an ERA plus above 240, Eckersley, Hoffman, Smith, and Gossage combined had five of above 240. So Wagner doing that by himself right there is absolutely incredible in my opinion. Absolutely deserves to be in. He's one of the best at his position. It's a shame that he is getting hurt in that relief pitcher argument. I get it. I understand it. But in my personal opinion, I don't think he should be hurt on that. Scott Rowland, too. Defense was obviously big on this one. As you mentioned, 116 defensive runs saved in his career. A total zone runs, he had 140, which is tied for 25th all-time. And then he was a good hitter, too. 316 home runs, 855 OPS. You know, it's a lot like Omar Vizquel in a way. Well, this actually, I'm sorry. This actually sets up my argument why Omar Vizquel should not be in. Because he was a lot like Omar Vizquel, a really good defender. But the difference was is he could hit the 855 OPS versus Vizquel was about 660. And I think that's what's really hurting Vizquel in this case. And you could argue, you know, Ozzie Smith. But I know you and I have talked about it, Ryan. Omar Vizquel wasn't as good as Ozzie Smith defensively. And I think that his defense is a little bit romanticized, honestly. And then unfortunately, and of course, we don't have the defensive run save numbers from the early part of his career. Uh, but... His defensive war and everything isn't that great in comparison to Ozzie Smith. Yeah, and I'm just going to pull up this stat right here. I, I'll get in, I, I could get into this very deep here because I've heard a ton of comparisons between Ozzie Smith and Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel had 
over 10,000 career at-bats, and he had a career accumulation of wins above replacement, 45.6. Ozzie Smith, in his career, had 76.9 wins above replacement in 9,000 at-bats. So you can't compare those two guys, in my opinion. I see why people are comparing them, because they're both light-hitting shortstops who are very, very good defensive players, but it's just not close when you look at the numbers. Yeah, and I think a lot of people too, including myself actually, not going to lie to you, when I first look at Omar Vizquel, was... 2,877 hits, close to 3,000, and generally 3,000 hits is a benchmarker, but the dude played for 24 years, and again, a lot of respect for that. He had a long, durable major league career, which should help you a little bit in your Hall of Fame case, but I think using that argument, 2,800 hits, you know, if you take off the last seven years of his career and he's not playing until his mid-40s, it's probably looking a lot different uh, in that case, case, and I was looking at a couple guys like Mark uh, Bellinger for the... Uh, Orioles back in the 70s and 80s, one of the better defenders of all time. He was a shortstop. Uh, ninth all-time in defensive war. Way higher. Similar offensive numbers, a 580 OPS, which is a lot worse. But he's not in the Hall of Fame. So I don't think defense by yourself can carry as much as people think, unless you're a guy like Ozzie Smith. But you also got to hit a little bit, too. And Omar Vizquel did not in that case. And I think that's what really hurts him. And it's unfortunate because... You know, he is an icon. You know, when you think of late 90s, early 2000s baseball, you are thinking of Omar Miskell. But I just don't think he's as good as people think he is. Just to add one more point on Vizquel here, the longevity is one of those things that I could see why people are considering that he should be in the Hall of Fame. He played a premier position from 1989 to 2012. He played shortstop yeah. at, at, at a pretty high level. But uh, in Four those... decades. Yeah, in those in those d- different decades, he only had two above average offensive seasons. It just it you got to hit a little bit more, or you just have to be fantastic defensively, like Ozzie Smith was. Another guy that I liked a lot, Ryan, and again I was questioning at first, but the more I looked at it, the more I liked it. Is Andrew Jones a sixty-two point seven career WAR, just under two thousand hits, four hundred thirty-four home runs? and a guy that is argued to be one of the best defensive center fielders of all time at a premium position. Ten gold gloves, second all-time in total zone runs with 253. I think there's no question he should be in the Hall of Fame. He was the best at his position defensively, arguably, and put together 430-plus home runs. What are your thoughts on him? Yeah, for me, Jones is also a lock. I had him high up on my Hall of Fame list, actually. I think I had him listed fifth. Uh, obviously, the rankings has nothing to do with the with the, you don't get any more points if you're ranked higher. But uh, it just goes to show you that for me, I think really highly of Jones. He had eight seasons with an 830 or, or higher OPS, which doesn't seem great. It's very good. 830 is a very good career OPS. But I just wanted to list those eight seasons out because it shows that his peak was a little bit longer than people think. He's 14th all time in center fielders and wins above replacement. And he had a very, very good peak, like I was mentioning earlier. I know you have a couple of stats on his, um, you know, peak performance at the center field position, but he wasn't one of those guys who kind of was just very, very good for five years and dropped off the table. Like I said, eight seasons with an 830 or higher OPS. And in those eight seasons, he had a couple of very, very good seasons. He hit 50 home runs one year and, you know, like you said, performed excellent defensively over his entire career. No doubt, and the stat that you referenced there was out of all of the 19 center fielders currently in the Hall of Fame, his peak war, which takes his best six, seven seasons to puts it together in, a, in war, his peak war is 
1.7 wins higher than the average center fielders in the Hall of Fame peak war. So that says enough right there, I think. And he's very close as well. Out of all the center fielders in the Hall of Fame, his war is about 8.5 wins less. So I, I do think he belongs in there. And again, he specializes in that defensive category. But not only that, again, as you said, the OPS numbers in his peak were fantastic. 400-plus home runs, that's enough for me. All right, this guy, Todd Helton, I'm big on. And I think, you know, for all of the reasons we've talked about in this show, whether it's PEDs, being a quote-quote one-dimensional Hall of Fame type player, Todd Helton's in a league of his own right now, and that's the Coors Field argument. It helps him that Larry Walker did get in last year. But Todd Helton was a guy I was big on, put up tremendous numbers, was a pretty good defender as well. Uh, What were your thoughts on him? Yeah, so I didn't get too in-depth with how I analyzed this. I looked at his OPS in all seasons, and I basically bumped up his OPS uh, you know, benchmark compared to other players. I, I said, okay, you know, if you're a really good offensive player, I would say a very good offensive is about an, eight, about an 8 DOPS. So I said, I'll bump Helton's up to 900. Let's see how many seasons he had with a 900 or higher OPS. And he had 10 seasons with a 900 or higher OPS. He had a 953 career OPS, which is just an astronomical number. Let's look at his 2000 season here when he was an all-star player. He, pro- he probably should have won the MVP this season. But again, that's besides the point. We're talking Hall of Fame here. 216 hits, 59 doubles, 42 home runs, 148 RBIs. He batted 372. 463 on base, 698 slugging, and that accumulated to a, an 1162 OPS. And in the park-adjusted metric OPS+, plus, he was still 163, which is just an astronomical number. It's an unbelievable season in an unbelievable offensive career. No doubt, and I love the OPS plus stat right there because that's what I was going to bring up too. And again, he did it on all facets of the game. You know, he wasn't just a one-dimensional player just hitting home runs, which I think says a lot for a guy who put up really good numbers uh, in Coors Field. Uh, 34 defensive runs saved, which is respectable. He did have a negative five defensive war. Did win three gold gloves, you know, and again, gold gloves, I don't want to say they're mis or they're like a misconception but you know they are a little bit of popularity and so forth and metrics have increased here so we're looking at things a little bit differently but still it should say a little bit right there um and out of all the 21 hall of famers that are first baseman uh he has a peak war that is higher than by 3.9 wins and he's just six tenths of a point lower than the average first baseman hall of famer in jaws the hall of fame monitor 100 is average He's at 175. So even if you throw in cores to that, take 30 points off of that, what? He's going to be at 145, which is still 45 points higher above average. I I think he excelled in everything offensively, and I think he was greater than he needed to be. And it's a shame that the course field argument is holding him back. But I gave him my vote. I hope he gets in. I think he will get in, especially since it seems like people are opening up to players from the Rockies. And again, you can't hurt a guy for... being on a team, in my opinion, right? Obviously, if a guy's borderline and has an 870 career OPS, sure, and he played half his games in Corfield, I get it. But as Ryan mentioned, 10-plus seasons of an OPS above 900, that says enough for me. All right, let's talk about some other guys right here. Let's start off with these three pitchers. I thought there were some interesting cases for them, Andy Pettit, Mark Burley, and Tim Hudson. Let's start with Andy Pettit. Again, a very respectable career on the mound. Again, nothing that jumps off the page, but re- but what really benefits him is his postseason pedigree, and I've been a big guy. You know, postseason can't hurt you. It can only help you, and in this case, it really helps Andy Pettit. 
Absolutely. And Pettit was a real tough guy for me to leave off the ballot. I know he's had a little bit of PEDs discussion wrapped around his career, but I tried to, like I said earlier, kind of push that aside for these votes and uh, just focus on the career numbers. And Pettit, you know, the three five, the three eight five ERA doesn't jump off the page here, but his 256 career wins does. And the fact that he had 12 or 19 postseason wins is just incredible to me. Uh, the he's just a winning pitcher, and he had, and he came up big in the postseason. And I think over over his entire career, to me, he's a Hall of Famer just off of those winning stats and the fact that he was just a real solid guy for his entire career. No doubt, 276 and two thirds of an innings pitched in the postseason, a 3.81 ERA. And remember that 3.81 ERA against the best teams from each of those respective seasons. So really impressive numbers for him. And again, you could argue postseason is kind of you know, based on the team he played for, and he played on one of the better teams of all time, the Yankees dynasty. But I don't care. I still think he should be recognized for that. If I had an extra vote, I would have given him a vote. It's just a shame that I didn't have enough. You know, and I, I we could talk about unlimited votes another day. But but if I did have unlimited, I would give him a vote. Two other guys I considered: Mark Burley, Ampton, Tim Hudson. Both of them very similar and comparable to Andy Pettit. I know you have another comparison to look at in a couple of seconds here. But just reading down the list in order from Pettit, Hudson, and Burley, their ERAs: three eight five, three four nine. 381. All of them pitched over 3,000 innings as well. Uh, both Hudson and Pettit had over 2,000 strikeouts. Hudson just barely over. And Tim Hudson was good in the postseason too. While it's not the 44 starts that Pettit had, still had 13 starts, 75 and two-thirds of an innings pitched, 369 ERA, got that World Series ring in his final year with the Giants in 2014. I don't think he's a sure lock for the Hall of Fame, but I definitely think guys like Tim Hudson and Mark Burley have a case. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that comparison. And that to me, I was comparing Tim Hudson to Kurt Schilling a little bit. Uh, Schilling did it for a little bit longer and he also had the postseason pedigree. But Hudson in, 200, or in uh, 482 career games had a 3.49 ERA and Schilling in 569 had a 3.46. So just slightly better, but I just thought that was a little bit interesting. Yeah, Hudson for me was uh, an interesting one. I actually wasn't considering him at all and I was just kind of looking through the names on the ballot, those first-year guys. Like you said earlier, there's no real first-year guys that appear to be a lock to get in or really don't really make a compelling case to be on the ballot of any any voters but yeah Hudson was an interesting guy I don't think people realize what a uh, really great career he had overall I know he had that tough injury when he was with the Braves that kind of maybe cut the end of his career short he did bounce back and pitch for the Giants uh, for a couple seasons at the very end but uh, yeah, the three four nine ERA does jump off the page for me. Yeah, and three thousand plus innings too. I mean, that, that's very very good stuff right there. So don't underlook him. Uh, but yeah, so that is wrapped up all the players that we wanted to talk about here today. I believe we had the same exact balance. Oh no, I am forgetting my man. I this is the second time I've done this today. Take you guys behind the scenes. We literally were listing out who we were going to talk about, and I forgot my man. Bobby Abreu. I just had to and wave my hands for Max to remember right here. This is unbelievable. I can't believe I did Bobby Abreu like that. Okay. I need to, I need to, with story time here with Max, okay? Bobby Abreu. I remember last year, a couple people were making cases for him on Twitter, one of them being Ryan Spader, and I was talking to a couple buddies, and they made a joke. Who would vote for Bobby Abreu? And I said, hey, you could make a case for Bobby Abreu. He had a fine career. Someone who votes for him would not be outlandish. And I got railed for it, Ryan. 
And now a year later, all of a sudden, everyone's jumping on the Bobby Abreu train. And he had good numbers. Again, he's not a Sherlock Hall of Famer, but it's worth considering. A 62, a 60.2 career war, 2,400 hits, 288 home runs, 400 stolen bases, was a doubles machine, 870 career OPS. The defense wasn't great, and that definitely you know, dampens him a little bit. Did win a gold glove, and that was a year where I don't think they were looking at the metrics because they weren't that great. But if you look at the Hall of Fame monitor, 100 is average. He's at 94. Hall of Fame standards in terms of batting, the average is 50. He's at 54. There's a case for it. And I definitely think Bobby Brady will gain a lot of votes. He got barely any last year. I definitely think he'll have a jump. I don't know if it'll be up towards 20%, but I'd imagine he gets around 12 or 15 this year. It seems like the popularity is gaining a little bit. But... I want to see Bobby Abreu get some traction here. Again, he's not a sure guy. I mean, the Phillies brought out a stat. They're starting a campaign now, too, where they showed the 10-year span OPSs of him and Mike Trout in their respective best 10 years, and Bobby Abreu is very comparable to Mike Trout as well. Again, I'm not saying he's a sure Hall of Famer, but it could happen. Who knows? Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself, Max. I mean... Uh, Abreu, I feel like, kind of gets underlooked, and that's because one of the main things that kind of was a mainstay during his career was his great eye at the plate. I wouldn't yeah. even say great. I will just say fantastic eye. He had eight seasons with over 100 walks, and that's not something that people, you know, it's not one of those flashy stats that people look at. But, yeah, the 870 career OPS win, he was kind of a comparable player to, to Sheffield war-wise. I think war kind of knocked Sheffield off uh, defensively a lot. Either it's pretty harsh on him in that stat. But, yeah, overall, uh, you, could, you could make a case, I feel like, that Abreu and Sheffield are pretty comparable players value-wise. No doubt. 2,470 hits for Abreu, 1,476 walks. Good for a three 95 on base percentage what was an incredibly lengthy career very impressive stuff so all right that's going to wrap up our hall of fame discussion max i think we ended up with the same ballot if i'm not mistaken we did you know and we did not talk about this i think we had a couple conversations about jones and wagner but besides that all on our own but great minds think alike ryan absolutely and just to rerun these picks for you guys Bonds, Clemens, Ramirez, Schilling, Jones, Helton, Kent, Sheffield, Wagner, and Roland. That wraps up Max and I's ballots. And uh, we want to thank you guys so much for joining our first holiday edition of Matanzerus. And we hope you guys have a great start to your holiday season. <laughs>